I think you're so right. You hit on something there about like writing and how it's cathartic. It's cathartic to get those feelings out about what's happening. And I like sometimes I worry about people who don't have those creative outlets because and I think maybe that's why creatives are so in touch with what's happening. We're able to express it. So we're able to like process it and then do something about it. I feel like there's a lot of people who just kind of shut it off. They don't have that outlet. So I feel really lucky to be able to write and make art about it. Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. My name is Joana Lacan. I'm an echo artist and arts writer. And in every episode, I bring you worldwide artists that embody the fight to create a more sustainable world. Today is the first episode of season two. Thank you for being here. I hope you had an amazing summer. This season, we have a very interesting group of artists from all around the world. And for this first episode, I have with me Miami artist and activist Melanie Oliva. She founded the collective Artful Activists and Inspiration Pollination to raise awareness of endangered fauna and flora and bring the conversation about social atmospheres to general public, opening the door to create changes in policies. We had a very inspirational conversation, looking at how art interventions can influence change, not only individually, but also at a political level. Before diving into the conversation, I want to bring your attention to some updates. If you have noticed, the intro is different from our usual, and you will listen to other sound bites during the interview. We had the amazing opportunity to partner with sound artist Annabelle Galea, who created these sounds for us. You will listen to her work during this season, so go give her your love and support. I will leave the link in the description so you can find her. Now, let's dive in. So, first of all, I just want to thank you for being here. Um, and to begin, can you just tell us that specific thing that we need to know about you so we can know you a bit better? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This is wonderful. I love that you're dedicating um, something to the artist activist community. Um, so, I am an artist activist. I live in Miami, Florida, which is in the U.S. kind of a hot spot for climate change. So most of my work I use to focus on environmental and social justice issues because there are plenty of those happening in Miami. And as an artist here, I just felt I really needed to use my work to speak up for those issues and also different species and also people who are affected by climate change. So you are an uh, art activist, live in Miami. Yes. Yeah, I live in Miami. I moved here uh, in 2014 from Chicago. Uh, because in Chicago, it's getting much colder. I don't want to say the, hear the words polar vortex anymore. It was actually, I don't know if you know about this, but it's so cold in Chicago in the winter. If you throw a pot of boiling water up in the air, it'll actually freeze in the air and come down like snow. So that was happening more and more often. Obviously, we're seeing effects of climate change. Um, so we just, my husband and I were not from Chicago originally. And we're like, why do we live here? Humans are not to meant to live in this cold condition. <laughs> So we moved to Miami in 2014, um, and I changed careers from advertising to becoming a full-time artist, um, and I started to explore the issues that are going on in Miami and really see, see them firsthand, because it's really hard to imagine um, parking lots flooded with like fish, they've literally found fish in these flooded areas on, on Miami Beach. Um, it's just crazy. So until you see it <laughs> firsthand and you really understand what's happening... Um, you just can't understand the full scale. 
So I just felt I had to use my skills and my conceptual skills, my artist skills, my advertising skills to advocate for animals. Um, so I'm also an activist in that I uh, try to work on policy as well. So I have been able to affect some policy change. Um, I feel like it's really important to back up my work with that. You moved from Chicago to Miami in 2014, from a nine to five yes. advertising job uh, to pursue your career uh, as an artist. What can you tell us about that process? Because nine to five is a very structured uh, life in terms that you have your life and you have your job, but art's not nothing like that. You create your own schedule and you have to balance it, everything yourself. How was that process? Emotionally, uh, in terms of materiality, you moved from Chicago, a cold place, to Miami. How was all that? Yeah, you mentioned nine to five. So unfortunately, my advertising job was not nine to five. It was more like nine to midnight or nine to two in the morning sometimes. So it just became too much. I got burnt out. Um, and I was advertising sugar to kids. I was advertising products that were filling landfills and the companies didn't really have an interest in changing that. I, I think since then they've become a little better, but it's because of public, the public's forcing them to. Um, but at the time it was very frustrating for me. It just didn't match my ethics and I felt like I couldn't change it. So I had to do something that was more fulfilling. Um, so moving to Miami and kind of getting onto my own schedule, I will say uh, sometimes I like criticize myself for not becoming a full-time artist right out of college. But um, I kind of like, some people say I sold out and I went for, you know, like paying jobs that were regular. But I'm so glad for the, I guess, the structure and the work ethic that it taught me and also the marketing skills. So that's really helped me as an artist. I have, I'm able to manage a lot of things at once. I'm able to uh, market myself and use those skills. And I'm way more motivated when I think about, um, let's see, I'm in my 40s now. If I were in my 20s doing this, I don't know that I would have been as, uh, I guess, as good about structuring my own time um, and being more accountable. But now I'm like, I'm able to manage that a lot better. And I'm very grateful for the time I had in the office. So it's helped me a lot and something that is more, I, th I feel like it's helping a lot more than what I used to do. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine that. And I, in my, in my opinion, it's like when you have an, an, let's say nine to five, you have a structure there. And if you feel that it's right for you at the moment, like in your twenties, twenties is the time for, for exploring. So if you, if you felt that was right for you to have the stability to grow, some people uh, romanticize being an artist and they forget mm -hmm. <laughs> that you actually need to eat to sustain yourself yes. and creating Uh, in that conditions is not as easy as people think. Having that background there, that bridge that protected you at that moment gave you, I believe that probably gave you a lot of mental capacity, all of time to create. And marketing is also a very important part of being an artist. I totally believe that that capacity helps you now because you are an activist, not only an artist. It involves much more than just creating art and being in the studio. You have to connect with people. You're saying that you are trying to change policies, so you, you need to be able to reach some type of people. So I, I don't think that assessment is that fair that it's so loud. I think everyone needs to, you know, walk their own their own paths and not be judged for, for that. Absolutely. And you just mentioned a really important thing in activism. It's all about relationships and relationship building and That was one, another thing I was very lucky to learn was to how to interface and 
react with clients, how to present to clients, how to present ideas, how to get people to buy things and uh, how to sell to them. So that's very important in activism as well. If you're trying to sell a piece of policy to a politician, essentially, to get them on board, there's different ways. Um, marketing and advertising is a lot of, uh, it's actually a lot of psychology. So that, that part has helped as well. You have any any specific moment that you can you can tell us in terms of how did you apply your marketing skills to your art career? Yeah, um, I mean, I honestly use it all the time, and also there's even like there's statistics about activist organizations or groups that say if they're marketed well, they have more of a chance of being successful. If they have like If they're branded, for instance, you don't even realize how much that helps. If you see an organization that has a nice logo, we're all humans. Still, we're going to respond to something that's nice and pretty and organized and looks like someone put some thought into it. So, um, but my favorite, I guess, instance about activism and using my skills uh, was in 2015 when there was actually a black bear hunt in Florida. So there aren't that many bears here, and they're kind of smaller bears. They're not like ferocious bears. <laughs> they're, um, I would say there's only like, there were, at the time, they're like 3,400 bears. But obviously, we have sprawled out. Human sprawl is huge in Florida. People don't have bear-proof trash cans. Um, so, and we've, you know, taken over their area. We also harvest, uh, people harvest the food that they eat. So they were becoming, I guess, more aggressive, not really aggressive, but they were getting into people's trash cans and people didn't like that. So the FWC actually instituted a hunt and they were selling um, licenses for hunters. So that was another thing. They were making money off this. They were selling licenses to hunters um, to hunt these bears. And again, we only had 3,400. We weren't able to stop it the first time around in 2015. So there were many that were hunted and killed. But we did, after that, start to organize. So I was kind of like working online virtually with a bunch of people in Florida and a, a group called Imagine Our Florida, which is now a nonprofit. But that was my first foray into policy. And I helped organize groups in different cities and different counties to get resolutions passed um, that would say, we do not want to hunt these bears in our county. So there was a good amount of success there. Um, I was just a little part of it, but there were a lot of people working on it. But I did get to pass a resolution. I got a resolution passed in my own municipality, which we don't have bears here in Miami, but it was more of like a symbolic gesture just to say we're on board with this stopping the bear hunt. So that was really exciting to me, even though I live in a small municipality. What I did was um, I partnered with a magazine called Red Flag Magazine, and they focus on activist issues. And they said I could write an article for their magazine, which is online. So I did that. Um, so I kind of used my writing skills, my creative skills, and I curated about, I guess, 10 images of bear artwork. So I reached out to a bunch of different artists who had artwork kind of advocating for bears. So it's kind of like hitting on the emotions of politicians. I wrote this article and I sent it to our mayor and the mayor read it and was like, wow, I'm really on board with this. I don't believe in black bear hunting. So let's get this done. So um, I do believe that helped. The article helped to uh, kind of, I guess, uh, win over people's hearts and minds. And there were like, I can't remember how many resolutions, maybe 30 resolutions passed all over Florida because of that effort. So since then, the After that, the black bear hunt was stopped. Um, and people still, they st still try to pass it every few years. 
Um, but the activists have been able to get it stopped thus far. So fingers crossed it won't happen again. Yeah, that's a fantastic example of how you use your marketing skills for your activism, your art. Yeah, it's, I, can't, I can't even believe how they legalized hunting black bears that way because they, there is a lot of species. I know there is a method when a species grows too much and it has to be moved or killed for the well-being of the ecosystem. But the ecosystem right. doesn't mean people. Because it means exactly. uh, other fauna and flora, uh, stuff like that. It doesn't mean, oh, because they are bothering me, I have to kill these animals. That doesn't, right. work, doesn't work that way at all. And it's great that you did something about that. So I'm in a national park, as I told you. And we used to have uh, these type of bears and wild goats. And they were, okay. they were so over-hunted that we don't have bears anymore in Portugal. They are completely extinct. The wild goats, they come from Spain. Now they are procreating that much more. I actually can see them. That's amazing. I can see them from my window, from my studio window. Wow. If you look, if you can see them on the rocks. And there is a lot of other fauna and flora that is growing here. But because the killing and the hunters were restricted, uh, so that's an am amazing thing. They actually people yeah, people are looking at uh, these tiny things because it doesn't affect them if, because this is a, it's a big area. So if you consider that, it doesn't affect them personally, but people are trying to change the habitat here. Letting And it's, it's amazing. I go for a walk and I see wild animals everywhere. I live here permanently. So just me and my dogs. And it, this wasn't like this a few years back. So this is actually very, very good. That's amazing. I don't know if you saw it in Portugal, but during COVID lockdown, it seems like a lot of the wildlife replenished as well. There weren't as many cars on the road. I heard a lot more birds. We've seen more foxes. Um, so it seems like that downtime where humans weren't as active, at least there, the wildlife was able to replenish a little bit, which it sounds like it did there. That's amazing to hear. Yeah, yeah. the fox population is huge. You can see them everywhere and it's great. It's just great to see that it's, it was a very hard time for us and it still is. Uh, but to see that the fauna and flora is bringing, it's amazing. So going back to your practice, can you create this visual map so people can see your artworks behind you? But for the people who can't, can you create this visual map of your artworks in terms of materials, your settings, uh, colors, motivations? Uh, can you create this visual map? Definitely. So I kind of work in two areas. Um, I had done a lot of kinetic protest art uh, in 2017. And before um, even, even before Trump was in office, I started getting more active in the protest scene. So I started making um, kinetic artwork. Actually, one piece I made was for the March Against Monsanto here um, against the pesticide company. I made a huge caterpillar puppet, a monarch caterpillar, and it had like six legs. People had to carry it. So it took like six people to carry it. And it moved through and we had people dressed up as like Monsanto workers. We had people dressed up as butterflies. Um, and after that, I repurposed the puppet because unfortunately, one of my cats peed inside the puppet and we couldn't use it anymore. So well, we did use it for an artist march that I organized as well. And we made it uh, that spoke more about migration and um, immigration of people coming into the US and uh, how we believed in open borders. So it was used for that. But then after that, we retired it and actually used the legs, which are all wooden legs, to make uh, different kinetic protest pieces. I'm definitely about reusing materials when possible. 
uh, recycling things. And so each leg became like a windmill, basically. I had one that was for smash the patriarchy, and it was different fists smashing down with the wind. Um, there was one that spoke to um, immigration and, and kids in, held in these awful camps. And then I had a couple other different ones. So I, I tried to use each leg. So we, I'm still reusing those uh, protest pieces, unfortunately, with all the issues we're having in the States with women's rights and reproductive rights. So unfortunately, none of those issues have completely gone away. They've gotten a little bit better with Biden in office. Um, so that's kind of my protest art area. And then I also have a series of paintings um, that I've just continuously worked on, which the ones behind me, if you're seeing this image, they are uh, reddish and coral colors, oranges and reds. So it's all a series called my after image series. So an after image is when you stare at something bright and you close your eyes and it's the bright image you see under your eyelids after staring at something. So it's meant to forewarn that the beauty of our world may be gone. It might be only an after image if we don't act right now and do something to save it. So I use this series to highlight different areas that are under threat in in Miami, um, the Everglades, which is one of the most biodiverse areas in the world, is constantly under siege by oil drilling companies, by um, development. So there's different areas that are under threat. So I have painted different scenes of the Everglades in this series to kind of like get people to sign petitions or just create awareness. Um, and then I've also partnered with photographers you can maybe see some of the butterflies behind me on the shelf, different butterflies that have been under threat. I have partnered with photographers to use their images and as reference images for a lot of species, but butterflies are something I focus on. They're kind of like the canaries in the coal mine. They're very fragile. And if the plants aren't there, there's something wrong that are you know hosting them or feeding them. So I do also paint birds, uh, different species, mostly in Florida, mostly Florida species. Uh, there's a series behind me called my palm oil after image series, which speaks about um, palm oil in Malaysia and in Indonesia, but it brings it back home to Miami because people in Miami, we're in our little bubbles and you don't realize like the decisions you're making are affecting um, everything and they're affecting species in Indonesia. So um, they're actually the only animals right now that I have that aren't really local to Florida, but there's a tiger, there's an elephant, and let's see what else, there's an orangutan. So they focus on um, palm oil and obviously the products we buy that have palm oil in them continue to harm animals over there and, and are really actually making them go extinct. So um, everything we do, unfortunately, has some kind of consequence. So my art's just trying to get that in front of people and make them think about it. Have you ever think about, as you said, that everything is a choice? So we have to be accountable for the choices we make. But there is so many issues. If you think right now, globally, there's so many issues. What would you say would be, let's say, easier? Easier way to focus and people not to be so overwhelmed. I think me, myself and you for sure... We are so within this world. We are so aware of so many things. And sometimes we feel drained because there is so many things that we need to focus on. And you choose fauna in Florida, in Florida. What advice would you give someone that feels very overwhelmed and how they can choose something and focus on that? Yeah, that's a great question because I do think that's what stops people from actually acting is that they just kind of feel overwhelmed and they shut down. And it's actually like a mental phenomenon that 
a lot of people have. So I think the best thing to do with activism in general is just to focus locally. And that way you can focus on what's around you. You can actually affect policy more easily if it's super local. Like just think hyper local. How can I get to know this uh, policymaker who, you know, is in my area? Maybe I've met them before. Maybe I can meet them and build a relationship. Because then you can actually make change and... Um, what we do locally affects, uh, you know, maybe what's happening nationally, because they're always going to kind of look and see what are mayors doing in Miami, what we need to listen to them. So um, and then it just helps you feel not like, especially if you do something, it just helps so much with that overwhelm. I can't even tell you how much like it just it makes me feel like I'm doing something, you know, like I'm helping. So I can't I'm doing as much as I can. And that's all we can do. So you can't do more than what's possible. But I think if everybody does something locally and we just get more people on board to do something it adds up to a whole lot that, that, that little thing the issue that touches you i think that's the important part is something when everything is bad everything is come crumbling if you can like oh i can i need to focus on everything no it's what is that issue that speaks to you personally And if it is in your local area, that's perfect. Try to find people, move. Because we don't think that activism and art is a solitary thing. And it's not. If you want to make an impact and to feel that you make, you need to move. It needs to be, you have to contact this one and that one and that one. Try to, to create this network, this bubble around you that actually speaks to you and speaks to your motivations and your wants and needs in terms of activism and art. Absolutely. And it, like you said, if you just do one little thing, like if you just kind of you keep moving and you keep progressing, but it doesn't have to be all at once. I think that's something else that causes stress and anxiety if you think you have to do everything at once. You don't. You can make little progressions. Maybe you do something every six months that um, you meet someone else or you... Um, work on one piece of policy it just helps so much to just like keep moving like you said just keep moving keep doing it but you don't have to do it all at once how do you prepare your days i'm curious about that terms do you have a, a particular studio time do you have a morning routine where you prepare for your days do you have anything within the week that is set or is everything free Oh, uh, it's funny. Like I'm one of those people who likes to make a plan, but then I like to do like the opposite of it. I don't know if a lot of creative people are like this, <laughs> um, but I do have like my list. Like I keep a list every day. That was something that kind of carried over from being in advertising. I had like a checklist of things I need to get done that day. So I have actually moved that from paper to my phone, like on my phone calendar. And then that way I can just delete it and just like get through it. But I like to do it like in the opposite order of the way I put it on there for some reason. Like just like, I don't know, I do the easy things first. For some reason, everyone works differently. Um, but another thing that has helped me recently is I kind of sectioned out my week with different days. So on my calendar, on my phone, I've got like, I think three days of uh, creating on my phone. And those days are just for creating. And then I've got like a day for marketing. Um, and then I've got a day or like planning uh, posts on social media. And then I've got a day for new opportunities. So that's like when I enter calls for art or just or reach out to new people. Um, and then that way it just helps me like, it just makes me do that at some point during the week. I might not actually do those things on those days, but I know that I need to like focus three days on creating one day on marketing and on one day on, on opportunities. And then I can like, if I get the one thing done, I'll, I'll check it off and I'll just move things around. So my phone has like really helped me in that way to organize my week, <laughs> but things always pop up, you know? <laughs> 
yeah, it's, it's great to have everything organized in terms of that you feel that this week I have this to do and it really helps for me. It really helps not being overwhelmed, especially when you have yes. long projects ahead and you have to do marketing and you don't have to do anything else related with the other things. Uh, so that's why I always ask what's the schedule because everyone works differently and some people feel really overwhelmed with, oh, I, I can figure out where I work better if it's in the morning, if it's in the evening, maybe I'm doing anything wrong or everything wrong. So knowing other people's schedule and how people work within the area of art and marketing and everything that we need to do for art is quite important for me and I think is important for everything, everyone else, I think. That is really interesting. Now I'm interested to know how you organize your week. <laughs> I'm quite in day, in day, so what I do is in the mornings has to be anything related with writing or podcasting, anything that I need to be extremely focused because I'm a morning person. I work better in the morning. And then in afternoons, I do anything related to studio, being sculpture, being, being drawings, being uh, installations. And I try to keep that. There are some days where I just have everything scheduled in my calendar and I think, okay, this day I can do this and that. And maybe I can have most of the day to, to, to be able to sculpt or to draw. Because sometimes I need that. I need just to have a full day of studio time, yeah. no interruptions. And I, that worked for me because in the beginning when I, I stopped college and I started to have all these different projects, I started to be completely overwhelmed with too many things. And then I couldn't be in the studio because I was doing writing uh, or contacting other people. I moved my schedule quite a lot. My advice is to be very flexible. Don't be like, oh, I couldn't be in the studio today. Uh, okay, let's try to do it tomorrow. If I, if I can do it today, let's try to do it tomorrow. Don't stress about it. Just try to be there. And if you are, if you work like me, if you have big projects, because I have my drawings and my installations. These ones take quite quite a long time, but the drawings is a, is a quick and easy thing. When I feel that I've been too much on my on my writing, my computer. And I need some creativity because I think everyone has that dilemma. Oh, maybe I, maybe I can, I can't have everything. Maybe I need to put art in the background and just do this. But I found that th that didn't work for me at all. Emotionally and physically, I thought that I wasn't doing enough. Uh, so I always, if I'm feeling overwhelmed in terms of anything else, I just go to the studio, do a quick drawing, anything that helps me. Because the drawing for me takes one, two hours, three hours max, uh, and I focus on that. Because my sculptures take this sculpture I'm working on now and for, for the Afghanistan women and uh, climate refugees. I can actually say it took me, it's, it's still running, but it's finishing. So it, it took me five, six months. So it's something that wow. goes a, a long, long way. And sculpture is like, like this, you have no way of of changing this we are the marathon of the arts and <laughs> and we just need that that thing that creative creative time to to be able to you know fix everything else maybe my date not going well okay just go to the studio do that small drawing <laughs> and then go back out uh it, it that's what really helped me but normally is mornings one thing afternoons others that's great that's a great way to work i think you you hit the nail on the head it's like hard to like do art with writing it's like you're kind of using two different sides of your brain in a way so for me it's like yeah I kind of have to separate them a little bit that's a really good way to work though in the morning writing and then afternoon and you have some variety too if, if you're like me I mean you're a creative person like you need variety <laughs> it's so important 
yeah. And when you are in the studio too, too much on one single piece, and you can't get frustrated. In sculpture, if you get yes. frustrated, it's like, you're gonna mess that up. And it's too, <laughs> it's too much time invested. So it's just like to do something else, go for a walk. And I think my writing quite helps me because I say cultured in terms that I know what other artists are doing, I know what's happening on the other side of the world, and I can manage my feelings for that issue in particular because I'm, I'm writing about global issues or artists in mm -hmm. specific. Um, so I think they feed each other. They are not completely different yeah. areas, but having them separated, not in the same field, you know, in the same area of ours, really helps to figure everything out. I think you're so right. You hit on something there about like writing and how it's cathartic. It's cathartic to get those feelings out about what's happening. And I like sometimes I worry about people who don't have those creative outlets because and I think maybe that's why creatives are so in touch with what's happening. We're able to express it. So we're able to like process it and then do something about it. I feel like there's a lot of people who just kind of shut it off. They don't have that outlet. So I feel really lucky to be able to write and make art about it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Just being able to, to be out there and be personal about something and having an outlet to talk about it and figure it out is, is something that I actually don't know what I would do about that. I do a lot of exercise, but there is a line, there's still a, a limit to that. <laughs> so I couldn't do much more than that. Um, but yeah, being creative really, really helps. So going back to you again, in our last conversation, you, you spoke about a very interesting upcoming uh, exhibition. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So actually, I just found out I'm in another exhibition that's more local Uh, that has to do with climate change. So I want to tell you about that as well. It's called Waves, and it's at Arts Warehouse in Delray Beach, um, which is not that far from me, about an hour away. So that's actually uh, opens on September 2nd. And the waves refers to uh, heat waves. It refers to waves of political unrest. Um, so I was really excited to have my art accepted into that show. Um, I've got another one on September 6th called Sunshine and Lollipops in Fort Lauderdale at Gallery One. That's a little bit more, it's not f climate change focused, but I'm kind of excited to have my work in there so that people are like, ooh, sunshine and lollipops. And then they see my art and like, oh, wow, it's a little bit unexpected, like <laughs> the meaning behind it. And then the one that you were speaking of is called the Abset Referent. And that's at Tag Art Gallery in LA. That actually opens October 26th. So um, the Abset Referent refers to um, how... As meat eaters, I'm not personally a meat eater, but like as a society, meat, even the word meat, separates us from what's on our plate. It separates us from the, the reality that it's an animal. Um, but this is also, the show also refers to how women are absent reference as well. Um, there's a lot of ways uh, that, you know, there's hidden um, underlying work that women do that's hidden, um, that's just society accepts and expects of women. So my work actually have three small pieces in it. It links basically uh, animal agriculture and the patriarchy and climate change. Female bodies are constantly oppressed and are made use of by our society. You know, they're, I guess, female bodies and animals are, are just always used for our own purposes, just how they are with human women. So um, my work actually focuses on that. And then It's just been really interesting kind of like working in the eco-feminism field a little bit more. I'm trying to get more into that because I think there are so many links between the patriarchy and climate change. It's um, even the world, you know, planet Earth has seen 
as a female form. And we don't think about how subconsciously, I think humans treat the planet as if um, it were a woman. We treat the planet as if it's oppressed in a way. We are we're just kind of doing whatever we want with it. So I think there's a lot of links there. Tell opinion until we really wake up and see, you know, how these things are playing out in the world. If we face patriarchy and dismantle it, um, I don't know that we're going to get out of this mess. I think we have to like, we have to treat all animals and all beings the way that humans want to be treated. Um, there's so many links between, uh, I guess, uh, social justice and uh environmental justice and animal agriculture that are really interesting. So I'd like to kind of go more that way um, with my work, but I'm very excited to be in the show on October 26th in LA. And it's with a great group of actually all women artists um, who all kind of focus on um, ecofeminism. Karen Fiorito is the, uh, the curator of it, and I'm super excited. Do you think that things for women have changed the last years? I think so. Um, I mean, at least uh, we're starting to look at what's going on. I think even things with like with the Me Too movement and there's things that I wasn't even aware of that I grew up in the South. I, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. So in the US, that's um, a place where women are even more oppressed, I would say. And you're just kind of like taught to be a good girl and, you know, let men make the decisions. And, and that's how a lot of uh, women still vote there. And that's how a lot of women across the US still vote as if they're second class citizens and they're okay with it. So I think we've confronted a lot of things in the US lately. I don't know that these, the minds of these women have changed, but I think so. I think we're planting seeds. I think it was great that we now have a a woman as a VP. I think things are starting to change, but like, why has it taken so long? You know, the women's, there was never, the ERA was never passed in the US, um, the Equal Rights Amendment. So we're very behind. I think we're seeing now also how far behind we are from other countries. It's been eye-opening. And I, I think just like, that's the first stage. Like, obviously we want everything like now, we want it to happen fast and it needs to happen fast. Women have been working on it. You know, there's a big movement here in the 70s. And I think they were actually in a better place at that time than we are now, um, which is very scary. But I think it's also kind of like repercussions of things that have happened here that have been making progress. So there's always going to be those repercussions. It's just very nasty repercussions right now. So it's kind of a scary place to be, especially in Florida, which is a very red state. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I, I think we're ahead in some ways, but we're, we've gone backwards in many ways, which is unfortunate. So do you feel that social change in terms of women trying to take the charge? I know this is a, a very heavy question, but it's something that I, yeah. I'm interested in knowing your opinion. Because when you have a lot of social change, you're going to affect someone. You're going to affect a group of society. And indigenous communities, women have been affected quite a lot during a lot of years. But the thing I've been seeing and encountering is that men also feel that they are being overlooked. They, they feel they are being attacked without a reason because there is a lot of, of men doing great things for women and for society. How do you feel about that? Yeah, this is a really tricky subject um, just because it's all about power for me. Like it, And when people feel that their power or their privilege is under attack or their privilege is slipping away, 
they're going to react and there's going to be a big backlash. And that's what we're experiencing right now. And a lot of it is subconscious, I think, just because it's so ingrained in our society. The patriarchy is so ingrained. Like, I don't even realize totally certain things until it's brought up to me sometimes. I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, why is that happening? Why, why am I like this? Why, you know, why do I not feel comfortable enough to speak out as much as a man does? Why do I get called a bitch when I do something when a man does the same thing and he's called assertive? But yeah, it's, it's tricky because I think just as I am unaware in many ways of what uh, societal conditioning I'm under, so many men are just really unaware because they don't have, I at least have a, I have a reason to try to figure it out. I want to peel back the layers. I want to figure out what's going on because I want to change it. Men kind of have no reason to do that. Like there's no incentive because they already have everything, especially if you're a white man. So a white cis man, there's no incentive unless like they're really aware and they're just like really, they really want to help and change things. And those men are few and far between it. There are men like that, but even the nicest guys have no clue about what our life is like, about you know, what an indigenous woman's life is like, what a black woman's life is like. But for me, I want to know because I want to like, help in the most effective way possible. I want it to change. I want to be equal. So it's frustrating. It's frustrating and hard to get them on board because even if their mother, sister, wife is undergoing something, what's going to be that trigger that will make them help? Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to actually, are they going to boycott certain things? Are they going to actually strike and stop their jobs on our behalf? It hasn't happened yet. So I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. It's very frustrating though. Um, but I do think it's a lot of it is like a fear of power being lost. Yeah, I feel the same in terms that I think there is a lot of things changing for women and mm -hmm. I'm so glad for that. But what I have seen is that men are being attacked sometimes without a ground for that. And mm -hmm. when you take some someone's power, uh, they feel like that. They feel that, okay, so we don't have any place in society right now. I'm attacked for every reason. I'm just born and I'm attacked. Yeah. Uh, what I want to, to ask here is things have changed for women quite a lot, but I'm seeing a movement that is against men. Do you think that's fair? I think, I mean, the Me Too movement was helpful because it was against certain men that had done very bad things that had been hidden. And a lot of people had their backs and covered things up for them. And then there's going to be, like you said, there's going to be certain people that are maybe accidentally attacked who maybe didn't do anything wrong. So there's kind of a hypervigilance there. And maybe men, some men do feel attacked right now. I, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's on par with the inequality that's been happening. So, and to me, like when I found out that there's certain, if I find out there's certain groups who have been attacked and I, I'm unaware of um, what's been happening, during the Black Lives Matter protests, I was not fully aware of what people live like day to day, what their fears are. And that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. But for me, and the way I respond is that I want to help. Even if like someone's calling me a white feminist who doesn't understand, who's not helping, I'm like, well, how can I help? Like, I really want to do the right thing. So I, I guess some people um, get defensive instead, like everyone has different reactions. Some people get very defensive and maybe they feel like, you know, all men are being attacked. They're not. Um, I think certain men are being attacked, but I think also it's really the patriarchy that's being attacked. It's not men. It's, uh, it's a system. It's a system that we need to dismantle and we can't do it by ourselves. 
we could try as women, um, but we really need everyone on board. So that's also something that's very helpful to see things as systems. And it's just the way it's been handed down over year over year. And unless we challenge that and, and start to dismantle it, um, nothing's going to change. So, but I do think the first part is uh, awareness and like maybe this awareness stage is very messy. It's very messy. It can be emotionally draining. It can be hard. Some people, there might be casualties of it and that some men who maybe didn't do anything have been attacked, but I think we're going to course correct. We're going to figure it out because we have to. Yeah, I think with any reformulation of systemic uh, issues, you're going to have this. It goes up and then it normalizes. Yeah. I just hope it normalizes uh, because there is a lot of good that we can do as women and men together uh, to change yeah. to change things. And non-binary, I just don't, don't want to exclude anyone here. Right. Um, to, to create a change and awareness of that, not attacking anyone. Because some people don't know, like I'm not, I'm not a black woman. I face what a white woman faces, but if I'm open to listening uh, to a black woman and they, they're telling me, look, uh, I don't want your help. Okay. If you, that's what you feel that I shouldn't be stepping into your atmosphere, your culture. That's totally fine. Right. And I think people need to understand that we need to respect the boundaries that they set. We have to start to look at people as individuals and not groups. Not, I'm not only a white woman. I'm Joanna, I'm an artist, I do this and that and that. Mm -hmm. See me as myself and not as a white woman. Right. You said something so good just a minute ago about, um, I really loved what you said about listening. I think that's the most important thing. And, and that could apply to men as well, um, or to anybody who wants to help a group that's being oppressed. Um, listen to those people. We have such an amazing tool. We have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have all these ways to listen to people. So you don't have to be the one speaking all the time. We don't even have to speak about anything that we're not sure about. Just listen to people and, and follow along with what is needed to help. Because absolutely, like, I'm not gonna, I, I need to like pass the torch over to people who really have lived that experience. And I want to support them. Um, I don't want to take anything away from them by being the face of anything. Like, I just want to support them and help in the, the most efficient way as possible. So I think if men, and this is a problem with the patriarchy, um, a lot of men don't like to listen. But uh, <laughs> no, like, if men could just listen to women and, and, uh, kind of listen to what we need and help where they're needed, that would be amazing. But it is also wonderful to see men out there doing things in activism spaces that really do help. And as long as it's been informed by other groups, um, that's going to be the most effective way if you're working with everybody who's affected. tell me why it's so important for you in particular to dedicate your life to activism and to help earth, fauna, flora and to apply your skills as an artist and conceptual artist? Yeah, I mean, I guess it wasn't always. I didn't really come to this realization until I moved to Miami. I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and I kind of grew up in a very wooded area. So I was very lucky to like grow up around nature to kind of learn to respect different animals and see firsthand how they're all part of the ecosystem and 
and each animal and species is so important. So moving and living in Chicago, it was basically like, it was in the city. There's a lot of concrete everywhere. I felt very disconnected from wildlife and from the earth. And I was in an office all the time. So I was just completely in a little like office bubble. Moving back to Miami kind of made me realize again, like how important everything is and just seeing like seeing all these different species and and living in like really living amongst flora and fauna again was really exciting. And I just feel like I I do have a special skill set in a way because I know advertising. Like I know I can use my artwork as advertising basically to like market these different issues to help activists market different things or just to like pull focus onto something that's happening. And I kind of feel like everyone, no one has to quit their job like me and like become a full-time artist activist. But if there's some way you can bring it into your career in some way, like whatever you do, there might be some other way, even if you work in an office, like trying to cut down on paper usage or just, you know, trying to use different things within your office that are more environmentally friendly or like maybe something your company's doing you don't really agree with because it's not helping the environment or other people or or maybe there's something you can bring. I just think there's always ways to bring it back and do something where you are if you are able to find a new career where you're able to like do something that's more, that's really going to help like maybe in the nonprofit space or uh, with uh, clean energy or something like that. That would be amazing. Um, I would love to see more jobs created around wind wind energy or solar energy or it's starting to happen, but I think we do all need to shift over if we can to something that's going to help more. Yeah. Have you ever thought of, when you're doing advertising to try to advertise for companies that were sustainable, uh, they're talking about social issues, political issues, anything like that before trying to be a full-time artist or even now, is that something that you think about? Absolutely. Um, yeah, when I was working for an agency, that was, I would bring things up like that, but people didn't like those ideas. <laughs> so, um, cause there wasn't money in it. Like they, they're like, why are we going to, you know, have this client when we have this other client who's paying us so much money and it's just all about the money. But when I, I was only able to do something about that when I left. So I do still do freelance design and I do actually do a lot of design for a nonprofit called Bound by Beauty and they um, focus on butterfly education and also building uh, butterfly habitats. So it's basically like connecting neighbors. So you each have like a butterfly habitat in your yard um, or whatever space you have and just like helping each other raise caterpillars or have food for butterflies or which really is like food for bees, butterflies, bats, birds, everything. So if you can bring people in through butterflies that they're thinking because butterflies are pretty and who can hate a butterfly, that's actually going to regenerate a lot of the... uh, the fauna and uh, the ecosystem. It's going to rebalance the ecosystem. So it's been really nice to be involved with that company. Um, I was a founding member of the nonprofit, but then I've also been doing a lot of their design lately. So that's kind of uh, my thing now is I only do design really for companies that are doing something good for the world. Um, I just can't stomach it otherwise, but I'm also in a privileged position where I'm able to do that. So yeah, I I constantly (laughs) try to reach out to different companies who are doing something good. They just often work on very small budgets, so sometimes it's hard. (laughs) So actually going into that trail, in in 2017, you founded the Artful Activist and Inspiration Pollination. 
Can you tell us about the collective? I know it's a big group. I have been, since our last talk, I've been going through to the website. So can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, actually, um, right after the bear, uh, the black bear hunt thing, I did start Inspiration Pollination. That was actually in 2015. And that was a group online, um, mostly on Facebook, of artists. So my whole concept was to to get other artists to use their art for pollinators. So basically to like inspire other artists to advertise how pollinators went in decline. Because at the time, in 2015, it was still a very new thing here. A lot of people didn't really realize how many pollinators were declining, like what, like the trouble we were really in. So that was really cool. And that was a way to meet a lot of artists um, online. And, and even like I figured out it's really hard to let, you can't tell an artist what to do or what to paint. They have to be inspired. <laughs> But it's funny, like a lot of the people I connected with in that group, I've seen even like recent work have more butterflies or bees in it. And I think it was like, it was planting a seed in a way for a lot of artists. But I also would like, uh, if they would post their work in my group, I would like post it on Instagram and I would like kind of give them shout outs. And like we had a blog and um, where we had like artists of the month and everything. So I was trying to also like give Like I was trying to give them more visibility if they were doing really cool stuff about pollinators. And then the Artful Activist um, was a group I started in 2017, also mostly a Facebook group. We have a group of about 250 artists and curators and gallerists um, and people in advertising. So that was kind of, I had been thinking of a way to like connect galleries with artists who are doing something good in the activism space because in the time in 2017 I still wasn't seeing many galleries showing work of artists who were saying anything with their art I mean not to say artists weren't saying anything but like they weren't it wasn't as overt um, about climate change and social issues now there's a lot more but at the time um, it was a way to like influence gallerists and just like try to like bump up the value of that kind of art Um, so I did also use it as a way to connect people. And then and I also co-organized Nationwide nationwide Artist March with an artist named Alessandra Mandolfi in 2017. And that was part of that group. Uh, we tried to get more people involved and we had the march in five different cities. And it was kind of like a reaction to Trump being in office and like all the things that were happening that were just very bad. <laughs> so we used our art as a way to advocate for those issues to like Those protests are always, it's like the marketing part of something that's happening, the policy change, basically. You have to have the policy change action behind it, but the protests can be like the visual thing that you'll see on the news um, that gets other people aware of what's happening. So I tried to use the Artful Activist to organize for protests, to get artists to come out for protests more. Also, um, we had a blog uh, where we would write about different issues. There were artist-to-artist -artist interviews of artist-activists. Um, and since Biden was elected, I haven't been as active with the group, but I have definitely, um, there's been long-lasting connections made from both of those groups. So for instance, the Absent Referent show that I'm going to be in LA Karen Fiorito, the curator, I met her through the Artful Activist. So I was lucky to be like, I connected with a ton of artists like across the country who were doing these things. And, and our goal at the time was to kind of stop Trump from doing all these awful things. And everything was very reactive. Now we're, we can be a little bit more proactive um, instead of having to react to something new every week. So going back to the policy part, so you live in Miami and there is a, a yes. lot of floods. What is the reality in terms of infrastructures, things that are being done to safeguard the residents? What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, uh, Miami is interesting because we are kind of ground zero in the U.S. for climate change and flooding. Um, we were lucky to have elected a new mayor uh, a couple of years ago, Daniela Levine Cava, who's our first female mayor in Miami-Dade County. Um, and she is a Democrat and she's very um, pro-ecology, pro-environment. So it's sad because she's in an awful position. Like we, <laughs> Miami is just so late in the game on getting anything done. Uh, we still have a ton of development going on. Just one little you know, piece uh, to illustrate how bad it is. Like a few years ago, there was a boat show here. There's a boat show every year. They ripped out all the mangroves on this island to make room for this boat show that was going to make them a bunch of money. So now they're realizing, oh crap, we shouldn't have taken out all those mangroves that were actually helping this island and Miami with flood mitigation and with erosion. So now they're replanting them, but like, gosh, what a stupid thing to do. <laughs> and that's just, that happens all the time here. But Daniela Levine Cava, I think last year did institute a plan she wants to cut down carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. She's focusing on energy and buildings, land use, transportation, fuel consumption, and water and waste. It's just, I don't honestly know if this is too late. I think there's going to become a time where we have to, we're going to be climate refugees. I don't know when it's going to be. I just know everything happens faster than the scientists predict. So that's sad. The other thing that's really hard is that Miami... We have porous limestone. That's what our ground is made of. So you, you can't just put up a flood wall because it's going to go underneath and it's, it's very porous. So the thing that's going to make us leave is our um, sewage and septic tank issue. We have really ancient sewers. We have not upgraded to new sewage systems that are better for the environment, pump out things more efficiently. We have a bunch of septic tanks still. So even if we were to like solve a lot of things, there's still going to be this flooding that's going to flood our sewers and septic tanks. And that's going to be the thing that I've been told that that's going to make us leave. <laughs> so um, I like that she's trying to do, you know, she has a plan. I just don't know that it's fast enough. Fridays for Future, uh, which was started by Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion, did a lot of work a couple of years ago about getting a climate emergency declared in Miami, city of Miami. They did get it declared, and I think they installed like a resiliency person, but I don't think they did much after. It's, <laughs> it's just like things will happen that are like more symbolic, but nothing will, you know, the city and the county won't really do much to follow up with it. So it's, it's really sad. We could be like, you know, leading the world and, and mitigating climate change and flooding, but we're not. Uh, we're just kind of playing catch up right now, and, and we'll see how long we can live here. You think that's in terms of budget cuts? I think that she has so many things to do, or it's so difficult to implement the changes because, as you said, the sewage system is ancient, have limestone, so it, it floods up. Do you think that's the issue, or it's all together? I think it's all together. She's got a lot on her plate. I, I think this is a priority for her, but. In the end, I think developers and money rule out. Um, there's been a lot of gentrification here that um, the city and county continue to let happen. Uh, big developers are taking areas over. They're forcing people out. They're taking areas over that are where the land is like, the elevation is higher because they know that's going to last longer. So they're um, forcing people who don't have a lot of money out of those areas. So it's just really, it's a lot for her, I guess, to... Uh, 
to instill, but I think like she's doing as much as she probably can with like the the powers that be, the people who have the money. It's really sad. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think it's all of the above. Like the sewers, they should have been upgraded years ago, but it's just silly. It's like they say, you know, we can't afford this, but like, can you afford to evacuate everyone out of the city? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're thinking in terms of emergency. That oh, that's yeah. that's in the future. That's in the future. I right. can't worry about that now. Yeah, for now we're going to get as many people building along the the bay as possible. It's silly. Actually, I listened a lot to BBC, and I think it was what last week. Yeah, this scientists are saying basically that the time is now, or we change things now, or yes. we can't go back. Now we can. We have the structures, and the the weather can still hold it. We can reverse it a bit back, but if we don't make cuts now, globally, right, uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, the ice is going to melt. Things are going to change. People are going to have to to become refugees, as you said. And it's it's great to see um, that things are changing. But when you look, if you look at the United Nations, uh, they're doing a lot, but they have their hand full. Food insecurity, climate insecurity, conflict-based issues, everything after COVID, it went, it derailed everything that people did uh, beforehand. For me, sometimes I feel that is too much. People are facing yeah. poverty. How, how they are gonna be aware or try to be conscious about what food they eat, what paper they use, what it's an exactly. impossible issue and heartbreaking to see that people that actually have the money to make a change actually don't do it and yes that's the only way this is going to change let's be right. real and it's that's who we're yeah that's who we're speaking to it's like these people like us like we are able to make these changes we can do it like but people just think about themselves a lot of people just shut it out or think about themselves but yeah people stuck in poverty are not in a place to be able to do any of this stuff uh, we have to do it if we're able So what do you think your artistic career will look like in 10 years? That was a really hard question. Um, <laughs> that's the hardest question that I knew I was going to be asked. I mean, I guess like I want to keep doing, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I think I will in some capacity still. I don't think I'll ever stop being an artist. I just can't. That's what I have to do. I have to be, I have to have some kind of function behind my art. Um, I want to back it up with policy. I want to keep working on policy and getting things changed. So I think like in the future, my art will, like right now, my art is still kind of a bridge from people who aren't quite aware to um, pull them in. I still want to pull people in with like pretty imagery and then they can find out the story about what my art is about. But I think in the future, my art's going to be more about like what we need to do to survive. <laughs> Like it's gonna, and I think a lot of artists, like we're gonna reflect, like we always reflect the times, right? So I think, um, yeah, it'll be kind of more about like what what ideas to survive in the warming climate or like planting our own food or things like that. I think in 10 years, we're gonna be in a different place and like we're gonna be, um, yeah, the world's gonna be a little hotter uh, unless we act now, like you said. So yeah, it'll it'll it might be a little more bleak. It might be more protest art, I'm guessing, instead of paintings, because um, it'll be a little more urgent. So you don't have any goals or aspirations for the future? Uh, goals or aspirations? I mean, personally, I want to keep, I guess, 
exhibiting more and showing my work around more so that I can have a bigger voice. I I guess I want to reach more people. I want to keep growing my following just so like I can speak to more people through my art and like connect hearts and minds more. So that is like, I guess my goal is to, um, yeah, I I would love to like survive on my art. Like I would love to like have my only source of income be my artwork. That'd be awesome. (laughs) We'll see. You are also a teacher. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So I love teaching kids and teens, especially. I also teach adults. But the great thing about kids is that if you explain something to them about what's going on, they automatically want to do the right thing. So as long as they're informed, they want to change their actions to help. I remember telling some kids in my class about how animal agriculture was affecting things and how McDonald's had actually really done a lot of harm. And they just immediately said, I'm going to stop eating burgers. I'm going to stop eating this. Like, what else can I do? Like, I was like, whoa, you never get that reaction with adults. (laughs) So it's really interesting. I I do kind of like, when I teach kids, I I teach them to like use environmentally friendly materials to recycle um, when we're making art. Um, But also I try to inspire them to do more and like kind of take in what's happening around them. And because I know like not everyone's parents are going to be telling them everything that's happening. Um, We don't want to scare them, but like they also do need to know the reality so they can respond. Yeah, respond early on and understand that that this is happening. Things are in the world are are going to change, and so they have the mental flexibility to to change in the future. Because I think a lot is done in childhood. So if, if parents and teachers instill that mentality of stability and be more more aware of things that are happening around the kids the kid grows up to be someone that normally cares about that stuff and is aware of that stuff yeah yeah and can be confident like you said to make the changes and actually they think they can do something about it which is true We are reaching the end questions. We have three final closed questions. This one is usual. So what are your insights into the importance of art as a tool to raise awareness of social and ecological issues? So my insights um, as a tool to raise awareness using art, I would say it's proven that art helps because art has created movements in the past. If you look at any movement in history, there was always an art component to it in a way. We're just, we're humans and we respond to that kind of thing. It makes you think as well. Um, anything that can like get your emotions to respond, like art or movies or documentaries or music is such a good tool to help people change and raise awareness. I also think, yeah, it's just critical that artists use this tool they have to connect hearts and minds. Because if you look at a painting that's like so, I'm sure you've seen a painting before that really like you step back and you just look at it for a while and and just makes you think it makes you have an emotional response. So we do have the power to do that. Yeah. I think my hardest uh, or my experience with that was I went to an exhibition. I think I've talked this uh, before, but I went to an exhibition of uh, ecological artist and she works with wood and deforestation and stuff like that. And at the last room, this was different rooms, you know, you had to walk around. And she had this big on the wall, different squares all together. And all together, it made a tree, a fallen tree. But then she had f- photographs of the real thing and drawings, so real detailed drawings. I look at that 
and I started crying. Wow. It was authentic. It was, I looked, I understood, and I started crying. And it was, it was my experience, and I think it was my only experience with that, you know, that contract there. So I always ask this because art can make a change. Even emotionally, just you see, you feel the emotion, and then you might make a change. For me, I know, like, if I, if there's something that happens that makes me cry, I have to do something about it. It's always my, like, kind of goalpost. Like, if I see something, someone who's suffering or something that's suffering, like, I have to do something about it. And I know that for me, if it's that way for me, it must be that way for other people as well. So what is the most important lesson you have learned over your career? I would say um, the most important lesson is to trust my instincts. And just because something hasn't been done before doesn't mean it can't be done. If someone tells you something can't be done, don't listen to them. Because uh, that's the way every new thing has happened um, over the course of history. <laughs> so I definitely um, have to trust my instincts. And that's not always something I've done, but starting to get better at it. And I think, yeah, that's the way we create change. That's the way we do something new is to trust ourselves as artists and keep moving forward. And what are three things that you would recommend an artist to do for themselves and their careers and why? So I see, I guess the first thing would be to uh, see your art career as a career. So there are stages where you get promotions essentially to the next level. You can't expect to be a wild success right away. You have to keep building, keep plugging at it. Slow and steady wins the race. So, um, and when you do get to that next level, celebrate it. You aren't going to have like a, a party for an art promotion probably, but to you, you know, it's important. So if you get into that show, if you, you know, uh, have a, a piece collected by a museum, celebrate it. So important. Number two, I think would to, to not take unsolicited advice or at least take it with a grain of salt. Because a lot of people giving you unsolicited advice have never done these things before, or maybe they got to a certain point and they, they couldn't get any further. So they think if they couldn't do it, you can't do it. So just kind of see where they're coming from. And if they're not someone you're being at as a mentor, then maybe don't take their advice. Just go with your instincts. And number three, I would say to invest in your career and your relationships So meaning time and money, invest in your career with good materials, um, with education, or at least as much as you can get. Maybe it's just online, but maybe it's talking to people. Find out, you know, what that next step is you need to take and invest in relationships. Uh, see it as a, a job, you know, take people out to lunch who are mentors, um, Invest in those relationships, meet people, uh, go to shows and meet other artists. That's really important, especially now that COVID restrictions have lifted a little bit. You really have to get out there and connect with other people who are doing the same thing. Uh, we all need to lift each other up. So, um, yeah, relationships is a, is a really good thing to invest in in your career. Yeah, art doesn't thrive in a bubble at all. And yeah. I feel that you, you do have to go to galleries and speak with the galleries, the curators, be out there. And you touched on a very important thing is celebrating things. I have seen people that they just move along. Oh, it's just an exhibition. Oh, it's just a painting. No, celebrate that. I was like that in the beginning, but now I'm just, I yeah. finished a piece that took me ages. I celebrate that. It's like, great, I did this. It's what I wanted to do. It's done. Let's celebrate that. It can be a nice meal, can be going for a walk or a long walk. It's just something. You receive something for your effort. 
to gi you give yes. yourself something and i think that's very important for your career and your individual growth your personal growth yeah yeah your mental health too <laughs> too yeah <laughs> yeah true so thank you. This was my, my last two questions. So thank you so much for being here. This was such an amazing conversation. I learned so much with you and your work. And I hope people get as inspired uh, as I was listening and looking at your work and what you do. Because art can, can have such an impact and do so much. It doesn't need to be the art in a gallery or in a museum. It can be so many things. And you are the embodiment of that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so lovely talking to you. You're amazing. I love this conversation and I hope someday we'll get to meet in person. <laughs>